Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley, the co-founder on Women's Agenda. Joining me in just a moment will be Tyler Lambert, our editor-in-chief, and we will be going through some of the biggest stories of the week, including uh, Naomi Saka on mental health, breastfeeding in public, how the richest Australians got richer over the past year, Christian Porter's defamation case. It is a very wide agenda today. Um, This episode will also feature Tyler's conversation with journalist Mick Warner, who has just published his extraordinary book, The Boys Club, exploring power and politics behind the AFL. Thank you for listening. Hi, Tyler. How are you today? I'm going well, Ange. How are you? It's a bit miserable outside today, but aside from that, we're good. It is a bit miserable, and I know that the news uh, kind of nationally is a little bit miserable as well because we do know that Victoria is now entering the second week of lockdown. Looking at the numbers today, they were low. I saw those case numbers today. Of course, that might change, may change by the time this uh, podcast episode comes out and by the time people listen to it, but uh, we are very much mindful of our friends, our colleagues, everyone in Melbourne and Victoria And a big shout out uh, to those taking on caring responsibilities at this point and and being back in that that world of trying to juggle and and manage everything that they have going on at home. I know it's particularly tough right now. Eat all the cake. You deserve it. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So we do have a big agenda. We are going to try and get through a lot of different pieces here quite uh, in a short amount of time, I should say. And Tala, of course, we will be going to your excellent interview with our sports journalist, Mick Warner, as well. First, let's start with a win for women. We really need these wins this week. So, Tala, what is your win? Uh, look, mine goes out to a whole host of women, actually, who are kind of telling it um, like it is and really kind of taking it to those sleazy guys that um, try to pick you up on LinkedIn. And this is becoming (laughs) a more common occurrence, uh, much to my dismay. Um, I've had a couple of weirdos creep into my inbox, that's for sure. Um, But there is, um, there's just a a bit of a kind of movement going on at the moment with women calling it out. Um, And it started with event sales manager, Nadia Owen, who received a message from a man who told her she had the most interesting pair of eyes uh, and he, and then she subsequently told him to save it for Tinder mate and, um, and then queried him on why his opinion on her eyes should matter. Um, and he responded, they seem to tell me that there's a, there's more to this woman that I might think I know at first sight. And, you know, baffles me. <laughs> why? It does uh, baffle me. What baff- what, do you think anyone has ever successfully like, picked somebody up? in this way. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there have been, but LinkedIn is a professional platform. It is meant for your career, is not meant for you to try to pick up dates. And especially in such a weird, uncomfortable and, and, you know, just sleazy way. We're just over it. Um, so Thank you to all of these women that have come forward and um, posted things on social media and really called out these guys that are doing it. Um, Hopefully we will see an end to that soon. Yes, I know. And it's, oh, it's, it's a minefield. I, I, 
I get a, a bit of this as well. And part of it is that I am very open about my LinkedIn that, um, you know, obviously you and I publish uh, quite a few pieces and our LinkedIn details are there for people to connect with. Yeah. And I do try to, ex- I'm not somebody who will only connect with people I've met in person or know. Um, I do actually try to connect with different people and be open to those connections because I know that often people have stories to share or interesting things to say or um, ideas or some Sometimes not always nice positive but negative feedback. But yeah, yeah. So like I, I feel like yeah, I, that kind of leads open to um, a certain proportion of creeps coming in, and then. The thing is you don't always know if they're a creep. I mean, it, 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 it's easy if they put out the note making it clear that they're interested in your eyes or they say that you have nice hair or isn't it wonderful that you went from blonde to brunette but maybe you should go back to blonde again, which I've also had. Oh, really? <laughs> God, that is atrocious. Yeah, they should have some kind of disclaimer on their profile like I am a creep, <laughs> this is what I'm using this for. Um, yes and then LinkedIn can actually delete those accounts and they can go and check out uh, Tinder or Bumble or yeah there's plenty of other apps so yeah all right good win the women calling it out I like it okay so my win this week um, very different but it is that on the first morning of the first day of the 41st parliament of Western Australia the state's First female speaker, Michelle Roberts, uh, simply basically declared that members would from now on be allowed to breastfeed their children in the chamber. Oh, that's awesome. It's like good, that. isn't it? I mean, it's awesome, but it is also 2021. <laughs> and how are there rules in certain places and situations that prevent this from being possible? But Obviously, you know, this comes, there's been shifts around, you know, how women, where women can breastfeed over the past few years and it's happening internationally in parliaments elsewhere. We saw, you know, Senator Larissa Waters become the first uh, person, I think, globally to get up and speak in the parliament while breastfeeding a child. Mm. In Western Australia, it's interesting, they actually have been debating this for a few years, like they actually had to debate it. (laughs) And... Um, and it kind of got stalled in 2019. It fell off the agenda. But I just love that, you know, Michelle Roberts uh, has come in and basically said, you know what, we're not even going to bother changing the rules. We're just going to interpret them a little bit differently because this is the 21st century and we need to reflect the realities of the 21st century. So it was an awesome move. Um, I've written about that this week, but I also noted it more disappointingly, not so much of a win, but um, there was quite a publicised case of a mother in Queensland over the past week who says that when she sat down to breastfeed her newborn outside a couple of luxury stores in this um, this mall on the Gold Coast that she was told that, you know, there are facilities available for that and her response was, well, I'm happy just to sit here. And this woman, a concierge, she says it was, uh, repeatedly said, no, go and use the facilities. Um, You'll be more comfortable. Continued to say that she should move on because she was doing this outside of these luxury shops and it wasn't really appropriate. The woman kind of stood her ground and eventually the concierge moved on. But the fact that this is still happening, I should say this shopping centre has since said that they will retrain staff and it was a misinterpretation and they didn't mean for this to happen. Um, a group of women have since gone and done a big breastfeed in outside these stores, which is wonderful to see, which resulted in some great photos and um, some encouragement and, you know, 
just reminders that it is illegal to tell a breastfeeding woman to to move on. So, yeah, a win into a how is this stuff still happening? So backward that that's still happening. I um, I have to say that when I was like, I mean, I my baby's now 18 months and there were a couple of times when I was breastfeeding that I no one actually explicitly said anything to me but there were a couple of times where I did feel quite uncomfortable and I could tell that there were eyes on me um for feeding him in public spaces and it it's just it it is crazy that we're still at that point we it would be nice to think that we could move on from that um yeah, and especially for that poor woman having to sit in a shop, like she was probably in a shopping mall. Like Those shopping malls, they, they have really comfortable couches and I actually love going through our local shopping mall and which um, has been recently done up and has these really beautiful, comfortable spaces and you see so many new mothers in there, often sitting alone, but we'll take the time and we'll be able to sit on those couches and be very comfortable and I think it's really important to remember that it is it is such an isolating experience often having a newborn. You might have some activities to go to, you might have a parents group or something to attend, but that doesn't cover for every hour of every day and getting out is really important. If they were anything like my baby who just wanted to literally be latched to me nonstop, you really don't have a choice. Like you, you either are relegated to your house for six months or you get out there and you feed in public and people just have to get on with it and just get over it um yeah exactly so other stories this week so we need to talk about uh christian porter tyler i thought you'd be the perfect person to take us through what has happened where we are at it is actually kind of confusing because it depends what kind of newspapers you read as to who is the big winner out of this defamation case what do you think Look, I certainly don't think Christian Porter is the big winner in this in this case. Essentially, you know, he has discontinued his defamation case against the ABC and journalist Louise Milligan for airing those reports in which he basically said that he'd been slandered. They had to make some small concessions, so they had to issue a statement in which they regretted the perception of what they'd allegedly said and, and understood that, you know, certain people might have taken that to to mean or, or identified Christian Porter, even though they weren't directly labelling him at the time before his press conference. But, you know, no charges were laid. The ABC has to, to pay for Porter's legal costs, I believe. But Louise Milligan certainly isn't backing down uh, and she has and the ABC has also fiercely defended her reporting and defended her as an investigative journalist. So I don't I don't feel like it's a win for Christian Porter. And certainly there are huge question marks still hanging over his head. And it really kind of leads to whether or not the government now, given that this case isn't going forward and there won't be any kind of investigation into it, public investigation, whether or not we go back to the government actually having to take charge of that. Because there are so many things that we that that are murky here, and I don't feel that it's tenable for for Porter to keep his position in the government's cabinet. But certainly, he has come out and said that that's exactly what he 
you know, that's what he is going to do. He's going to maintain that position. He says he retains the full confidence of the Prime Minister, which is, you know, deeply concerning in my mind. But that is where we're at. But we've also had Joe Dyer come out, who was the friend of the woman who alleged she was raped by Christian Porter in 1988. And she's also issued the former Attorney General with a warning um, that she is considering launching a defamation case against him now because of what he said in that press conference this week uh, in, in, you know, announcing that he would be discontinuing the defamation case because he... She, she believes that Porter twice impugned her honesty and integrity in his description of how those allegations had broken and what they were, were based on. So it will be really interesting to see what comes of that and, and her lawyer is, is, you know, involved in this process now and I think has, you know, issued him a formal warning. Um, so, you know, I, I, I personally hope that, she does carry that on. I think that we need answers to this and I I feel deeply uncomfortable that Christian Porter will um, remain in government and in such a powerful position um, when we still just do not know what went on. I agree. And it's interesting when you look at the, the timing of what's gone on, the why behind it. I mean, so much more information may have been revealed through this that we won't know or perhaps the... The, the case could have run closer to um, an election or something. Who knows? So, but it's not over. I, I, I certainly don't think it is. Um, and I genuinely hope that the public continues to put pressure on this situation because it is a huge part of calling out toxic culture in Parliament and all of the groundwork that we've made there. Um, this is a fundamental component of that. Uh, and we cannot just let it lie. On to Naomi Osaka, a new story. I was looking for a segue there. As you can see, I completely failed. Okay, but <laughs> into sports. So Naomi Osaka, who uh, this week, so she has been playing in the French Open and after round one, her victory there, she uh, well, she's basically said that she's decided not to participate in the press conferences post the match um, she received a fine for that. There was uh, a lot of opinions about whether she was able to and should be allowed to come out and say that she just you know, won't be participating in those press conferences anymore. This week we've since seen that um, Osaka has pulled out of the French Open and released a statement saying that uh, she has suffered from bouts of depression over the past few years, that she always feels incredibly vulnerable and anxious before these press conferences and that for, for this uh, particular tournament she decided that she wanted to put her self-care first and that she had written to the organisers requesting this. So before it all blew up, she had actually written and asked for this request. So it's inter- it's really opened uh, a lot of conversation about, you know, what athletes, uh, what we're asking of athletes, what they go through, um, uh, particularly, you know, how journalists will keep going at these athletes in these post-match conferences, particularly, you know, asking um, all sorts of questions about their performances and what may have gone wrong or what went right or whatever. And remembering that, you know, a player like Naomi Saka, she is incredibly young. She's still only 23 years old. And 
I mean, a lot of these players in these tournaments are uh, even younger. It's not just tennis. You know, these these press conferences happen elsewhere. But also it, it, it looks at, I, I feel like she's done a lot in terms of opening up a conversation about depression, anxiety and mental health in, in any line of work and how, you know, it should be okay to really come out and say, hey, I, I don't want to participate in, in this particular aspect of the work right now. I can't do it. Maybe in the future I can, but right now it's, it's, it's not where I should be or what I can do at the moment. What do you make of the situation? I, do you know what? I've, I've changed my perspective on this this week and I'll be, you know, really upfront about that. I think when the story first broke, my first thought was that that is part of her contract and that's part of her job as a professional tennis player to get up and take part in those press conferences. Um, but I've since been thinking about it more and more and, you know, her pulling out of the tournament, no one would bat an eyelid if a professional tennis player did that because they had a leg injury or a back injury or anything kind of physical. She has, you know, she's identified that she has been battling with mental illness. Um, and you're right, she's very young, she's very very vulnerable, um, and she's been brave enough to kind of speak about that. Um, and so I think it's all part of this, this kind of thing that we need to overcome as a society where we really start to acknowledge and respond to mental illness in the same way that we would physical illness. Um, and I, I really commend her for coming forward and, um, and being so open about this and, and speaking about it and taking a stand as well for other young men and women um, that that might need to do the same thing, you know, and it's it, it is part of their contract. It is part of their job. But I agree. I think if if they are being respectful about it and they are ad- identifying what's going on um, and and trying to to kind of negotiate that with organisers um, and and always maintaining their you know, being professional about it, then I just don't see what what the big issue is. And I certainly don't understand the level of vitriol that has kind of come at Naomi Osaka um, this week from... Uh, from some of our favourites. So. From some of our favourites. Um, yeah, Piers Morgan, we had thought that he'd kind of bowed out quietly, but unfortunately... Um, I mean, he has to... It's a, She's a young woman, so obviously he has to have some kind of opinion on her, right? So that that's his job, basically. Yeah, I mean, look, he had a lot to say this week and called her precious and a princess and all of, you know, just really kind of went went to town. And actually, you know, he can't stop himself because he said that she'd taken a, a leaf out of Harry and Meghan's playbook or or something to, to that effect. And, of course, he can't ever leave Meghan Markle out of anything because he's just got, like, a serious, creepy obsession with her. Um, but, yes, and, and I think, you know, a number of other um, commentators, including um, the Australian, actually came after her as well. So I, I'm, I, I'm a bit dismayed to see that, but I do, I think that what she's done is really brave and I hope she feels well again soon and, um, and you know, well done to, to other players for kind of standing up for her as well. Yes, agree. Um, I want to read Venus Williams's quote, which was kind of labelled as a bit of a mic drop moment regarding these press conferences. 
Uh, but first, I, one final point on this, and I was kind of in your camp as well, Tyler, earlier on before the full story came out, and I think that maybe there's a bit of uh, there's something gone wrong or broken down in the communications, and the second statement that Naomi Osaka uh, released was was really, really powerful and, and really made it clear what was going on here. But um, I was also kind of considering these post-press conference, match press conferences and, you know, we know these tennis players get paid a shitload of money and it's, it's an idea of being, you know, this is part of the, uh, the, the game, this is part of the contract, uh, this is part of the, the entertainment value, I guess. And then that really did make me sick. It is, you know, the entertainment value should be getting, having the opportunity to watch these amazing players do what they're really good at, which is play tennis, as it should be in every sport. And, of course, we want every athlete to be a great role model and to be uh, doing the right things outside the game given you know how young kids and all of us look up to them. But at the same time, do we really care about what they say? In like, Do we really need that? That's it's just I know that some will come out with these interesting one-liners and it makes a great headline, but... That's not the, the entertainment should be the sport. That's what they should be paid for. They should be there to put on their best athletic display and do the amazing things that they do that put them at the top of their game. These people didn't come into tennis. They didn't become great tennis players because they're great at post-match press conferences or that they're great public speakers. That's not really what they're supposed to. So still in sport, Tyler, we do want to cross to your interview that you've done with Mick Warner. Can you... What I know, I'm I'm kind of halfway through his book, and it is an absolute eye opener. It is called The Boys Club, and it does look at uh, power in the AFL and a lot of things that have been going on there. That, as somebody who doesn't really know much about AFL, who's picked up this book, I I'm just godsmacked to to learn about all of this. Yeah, I had a chat with Mick um, yesterday, and he's really done some exceptional work here and and you know he's a he's been a journalist with the Herald Sun for a long time now um and so it's arguably a very brave approach he's taken here because we know that you know News Corp partners with the the AFL and and like that that's risky business for Mick but his perception and and kind of deep feeling is that he needs to bring these allegations to light he needs to bring the corruption that goes on and is pretty prolific in in the AFL um to light and he needs to to start a new conversation and um and help shift the dial here because essentially what he has kind of documented is an organization that has zero governance um and when that happens just so much um so much kind of exploitation and um, abuse of power takes place. Um, and so I will leave it there and, and obviously Mick um, is going to, we'll, we'll segue to the interview with Mick in just a moment, um, but I do encourage anyone to pick that book up as well, especially anyone that's really interested in um, sport or the AFL. Um, it, it's really illuminating and I think the more people that know about this and the more people that champion, um, you know, a new conversation, the better. Okay, let's cross to that interview now. The concept of there being boys clubs within numerous workplaces and sectors across Australia isn't foreign, but across sporting bodies and particularly those which lack true governance, this is unsurprisingly amplified. Michael Warner is an award-winning investigative journalist and the author of newly released book, The Boys Club, 
an illuminating and pretty jaw-dropping expose of the power and politics behind the AFL. Michael joins me here today. Welcome, Mick. Thank you so much for making time to chat. Oh, thank you, Tyler. Uh, great to be on the show. Um, Mick, you've been a sports journo with the Herald Sun for many years and a diehard fan of the AFL. What gave you the impetus to write a book like this? Because it's probably not what people would expect from you. I sp- yeah, thanks. I probably reporting on the AFL first. I started in 1998 on and off and have been reporting on it full time since 2008. And everyone would know, um, you know, the passions of the game as one million Australians and paid up members of clubs. Australian rules and the AFL is like a religion in the southern states and uh, it's a huge game, the biggest sport in the country. Um, having said that, there's been a lot of scandals through the game, many largely not of the AFL's administration's doing, it should be said, you know, from salary cap cheating to illicit drug use, the Essendon saga and so on. But a lot of those scandals, I say, have sort of been exacerbated or um, polluted by the AFL's attempts to to get to a preferred outcome. So I, I wanted to do a book encompassing the entire culture and uh, governance of the game and um, it was a, a three-and-a-half-year project and um, some of the things I found were, were quite disturbing. Mm. And it, it would take us, you know, far longer than we have time for to kind of go into the level of corruption that you do expose in the book. But one part of it is that you kind of courageously detail an array of claims from current and former AFL staff, predominantly women, about an unsafe workplace. Can you give us a bit more insight into the kinds of behaviours that are occurring and why they continue to? Yeah, so I spoke to almost or more than a dozen women who detail grievances to me of what they described as an unsafe workplace at AFL House, some of the state bodies. Um, And these are views that some women and, as you mentioned, a handful of men have have, have spoken about over the years also in, in clubs. But this book's about the administration and some of the stories uh, that these women told me were, were, were disturbing and frightening. And um, what one of the things that particularly was upsetting to them was that they thought that they'd been failed not only by the business but the human resources part of the business, which is supposed to be a safe haven for people who have issues and grievances um, through work. And um, it, it goes, I think, to a, a wider culture. The AFL says it's getting better in this space. You would have seen Jess Halloran in the Australian reporting at the same time as this book came out, uh, her own investigations into the, the use of confidentiality agreements to silence, which the, the, many of the victims say is, is preventing them from speaking about their experiences. And, uh, you know, for a sport as big and powerful as the Australian Football League, um, they obviously like so many different parts of our country, including the parliament, need to be so much better in this space. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the level of what's going on and, and the number of women that have been forced to sign NDAs is is shocking. So what, what needs to happen in your mind to shift the dial then and have the AFL become a more inclusive and transparent body? Yeah, well, Gillian McLaughlin, the CEO of the AFL, um, was was pressed on this uh, in a recent interview, and he he said that he was willing to meet with with some of these women, and uh, I think that that was rightfully pointed out by Prue Gilbert that if that was those sort of meetings were to take place, it needed to take place as part of a formal independent investigation into the workplace. It's simply not good enough 
to, um, for example, the Prime Minister recently meeting with Brittany Higgins. Uh, that wasn't just a... Um, there are processes at play. She would have been also accompanied by, you know, certain people. So um, it's good that the AFL have said through that Gillian McLaughlin that they're going to look, he said, at the nuance of these confidentiality agreements. What What is a bit more alarming to me or a lot more alarming to me is after that initial statement from the CEO of the AFL, we haven't actually heard from the commission, which sits above the AFL executive, led by Richard Goiter, um, seven or eight people on the AFL commission, and they're yet to say anything, which surprises me uh, given, you know, for example, the, the enormous sponsorship from some of the biggest companies in Australia that these sports, particularly the AFL, attract. Uh, I wonder what the sponsors must think of these sort of headlines. So clearly the AFL culture is somewhat better than it was 10, 5, 10, 20 years ago, but it's obvious there's still a lot of work to be done. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It'll be interesting to see what the response, as you said, is from sponsors and whether they they start to to kind of air their own grievances about what's happening. Well, that's where the pressure comes too, isn't it? More often than not, I mean, when when Eddie Maguire was forced out of Collingwood in February, ultimately it was the sponsors, you know, around the club that that they couldn't be denied in the end. Um, they couldn't contain it because the sponsors were wary of of their brands being dragged down. So um, Yeah, and often it seems that sponsors and, and big business are kind of more progressive in this the their thinking um, than than these sporting bodies and um, other other programs like Alan Jones's program as well kind of face the same um, issue. But look, do you think that a fem- female CEO would help? Oh, I, it wouldn't only help. I think uh, you, you look at the, the Richmond Football Club, which for so long was a basket case, but almost by accident got Peggy O'Neill to be their chairperson five, six years ago. Um, there was a bit of a, a power struggle going on and Peggy came through the middle. And just the way that her her leadership has been able to lower the temperature at Richmond. Um, she's been in the background focusing on governance. I think a leader like that at the AFL um, at running the commission, but even as a CEO, would would be um, would be a good thing for the game. There are a lot of uh, more women. Three of the eighteen football clubs in the AFL now have female chairs, which is a good thing. Um, but I think at head office, you know, whilst there are some females on the commission, um, they're not uh, front and centre, if you like, um, and certainly not not in the um, the executive at the AFL. There are there are several women on the AFL executive, but yeah, to answer your question, I think it'd be a great move. Yeah, yeah, and I note that um, Peggy's actually come out this week as well and asked for a, a greater level of transparency from the AFL as well off the back of this book. So, um, you know, that that's great to see. Um, Mick, you have arguably put quite a lot on the line to write a book like this. Why is it important for more men and especially those with platform and influence to do the same? Yeah, well, I I just honestly wrote this book because the AFL, in my opinion, can and should be better at the way that it conducts itself. Now, um, this is an issue that a lot of the clubs have been pushing for a review of the game. There hasn't been an independent review of the AFL's governance processes for 28 years. Businesses should be far more regularly looking at their 
process is every two, five, ten years, but three decades is, is, is far too long. Obviously didn't come at this book solely on the, um, the, the issue of the treatment of women, but it was something that, that came along uh, as part of those investigations. But these sports, they don't pay tax, for example. They are able to regulate themselves so that they need to be able to reach a far higher threshold of integrity. Unless they do so, then, you know, maybe government should be looking at those those tax-free status and et cetera. Um, so I just say that, that, that the game, as good as it is on one scoreboard, scoreboard commercially, the, that can't be the only measuring stick, can it? It has to be also the way that you conduct yourself, your transparency and accountability, um, policing of integrity and obviously treatment of women. Um, and and so, yeah, they have a long, a long way to go. Yeah. Mick, thanks so much for joining me for this chat today and thank you more so for having the bravery to call this level of misconduct out. Let's hope that the AFL is listening. Um, and for anyone who wants to pick up a, a copy of Michael's book, uh, you can do so at any big bookstore at the moment and, and through Booktopia. Um, but thank you again. Thanks for having me, Tyler. So, Tyler, um, that that's great. Absolutely. I, I want to keep reading this book now and do encourage more people to pick it up because it really does shine a light on one of the most powerful institutions uh, in Australia, possibly one of the most powerful sporting institutions in the world as well. It's That's pretty incredible. And, again, the courage there that um, we forget that, you know, one thing that if you're a journalist covering any industry, but particularly sport, it can be really hard to go and do this level of investigation and this level of, you know, calling out every aspect of power on the sport that he loves and that he covers and that he's, you know, made this career from. Like that takes huge courage. So, so yeah. well done to Mick Warner. Yeah, absolutely. Can I end on one final story? Please. Can we talk about the billionaires? The billionaires. And the AFR rich list? Because... I just thought this was an interesting little side note to put on the really crappy year that uh, pretty much the world has just had and, you know, the situation that continues now uh, with the latest COVID outbreaks and uh, all the various small businesses that have been doing it tough, the casual workers that um, have lost work that never got any access to JobKeeper, um, anyone who's uh, lost work or found that they can't pursue their work because they're taking on more caring responsibilities or whatever it is. But it's good to know that the wealth of Australia's top 200 uh, richest people has actually risen by $56 billion to $480 billion. And you know who's at the top of the list? Gina. A woman. <laughs> Gender equity is solved. And Gina Reinhart's uh, riches have increased over this period as well. So well done to her. She's a true, <laughs> cha true champion for just so many things. Imagine if people are actually just doing the podcast right now. <laughs> Imagine if she was listening to our podcast. I'd... I don't, I don't know. I don't know that it's top on her priority list. I mean, sure, she probably receives the Women's Agenda Daily Update every lunchtime and is all over every story that we cover. But, um, uh, yes, no, a woman at the top there. I don't know that there's many other women on this list, so I guess that is something. Well, sure. Um, 
sure. I don't know if we're going to massively champion the uh, the wins of Gina Reinhardt on this podcast, but <laughs> but yes, it was a little bit of a doozy that that story, knowing that that is where the wealth distribution is in Australia. Um, especially when we know there are so many kind of glaring gaps and issues and people that desperately need funding and and money at the moment. Um, it's a little bit, it's a, a bit of a stab in the guts when you see, see that. Um, yeah. Well, as well, Carl Rhodes, who has outlined this in the conversation, he points out the fact that more than 3 million Australians uh, withdrew $37 billion from their superannuation over this period that, you know, collectively Australia has taken on, uh, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of debt through the pandemic that national debt is expected to grow much further into the mid-2020s. Um, so, yeah, well done. Well done. Well done. Gina Ryan, her net worth is it's 31, uh, over $31 billion, uh. from $28.9 billion, so. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Women's Agenda podcast. A reminder that you can find all the stories that we discussed on our website at womensagenda.com.au where you can also subscribe to our daily newsletter. Um, We did discuss mental health in this episode and if it did raise any issues for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224 A reminder also that if you are in immediate danger, call Triple O. And if you need any help and advice, uh, you can also call 1800RESPECT or 1800 737 732. Thank you for listening.